Welcome to the Human Design Collective Podcast, where we explore the system as a map of our unique potential, from the mundane to the mystical. Our next Living Your Design weekend intensive will be offered this November, and Rave ABCs begins October 7th, 2022. If you'd like to dive deeper into your design, we invite you to check out our course and workshop offerings at courses.humandesigncollective.com. Leela Swan Herbert is a 4-6 emotional generator on the right angle cross of rulership. She had her first reading with Ra Uruhu in 1999 and has been experimenting with the system ever since. Leela teaches child development and variable transformation at the International Human Design School and brings her depth and understanding of human dynamics, intimacy, and individuality into everything she does, which we think you will hear and appreciate in this episode. She shares her story of personal growth and challenge with an embodied awareness and clarity coming from years of self-observation and reflection. We begin our conversation discussing the mind and its incessant drive to find reasons for our experiences. It's such a great lesson in that so much of the time, we don't know why. We don't know why most of the time. It's just go here, you know, (laughs) get out of here. Why? We don't know. It's time to go. The mind will always make up something, right? You know, well, this is why that happened or whatever. And it's just this series of experiences. The mind's always looking for a reason. Always looking for a reason. And I'm really curious to see, you know, as we move past 2027, as this pressure of logic starts to relieve itself, if that pressure to have a reason also starts to diminish, or if it just, there's no choice, it just, everything becomes unreasonable. It becomes obvious there is no reason. (laughs) (laughs) That certainly seems to be the case. (laughs) I love what you said about this is what's happening, or this is just what's happening. And that's something I come back to so much in my own experience of, well, this is what's happening now. And I guess inherent in in that it can be some degree of trust or surrender and like, let's see where this takes us. You know, Ra talks a lot about no choice in the early days. You know, it doesn't seem to come up that much in the mm, discussions that I've seen around me in the later years. But, you know, that no choice, at one point he talked uh, in one of the classes I was in about how ultimately as passenger consciousness, if this nine-centered vehicle is operating correctly, passenger has no choice. It's okay. It's like whatever the vehicle decides is exactly the right experience for us to witness, to observe, to not only learn from, but to take that feeling of the experience in, in the way we translate the outside in to have that human experience along that particular pathway. You know, a lot of people kind of try to turn that whole discussion into free will and, you know, all that crap. And it's really just when there's surrender, as you were saying, to recognizing that state of witnessing, then whatever happens, there's a sense that you're going to be fine. It's okay. It, <laughs> it's all right. You know, it's like my mind in particular for years was stuck on this fear of, well, if I don't take care of it, if I don't do it, if I don't keep working, if I don't make money, if I don't, then I'm going to end up a bag lady on the street. I have an open route and, you know, that pressure to strive and get ahead and push, push, push. And the realization for me in that space of witnessing is really Yeah, some experiences really suck. You know, they're not fun being in the body, going through it, but I'm okay. The passenger consciousness that's observing this experience is absolutely okay, absolutely fine with however it unfolds. It doesn't mean that I'm detached from it. 
You know, like when my son died at 29, it literally brought me to my knees. I mean, I physically collapsed when I got the news. And this howl came out of me. We approached this concept of detachment in a lot of spiritual writing and traditions, you know, to be detached from the mind, to be detached from the body. But witnessing is really about being an engaged witness, you know, not trying to escape from what's taking place or deny it, but to truly be present to whatever's taking place. And once I got that on a deep level, it's like, I yeah, okay, if I end up a bag lady on the street, I'm going to be okay. As long as I'm breathing, life is good. And if I'm not breathing, it's not a problem. (laughs) (laughs) The mind's always stuck in its story. It's always stuck in its story. You know, the this and the that, the this and the that. You know, the mind is just mine. It's like a rat in a maze. It's going to keep running down its little stuff. It's not that it's bad. I mean, yes, we can have inspiration. We can have breakthroughs. We can have... But that comes from our awareness of the experience, right? It's the awareness that changes things, not changing the mind itself. When I'm aware of the pattern of what's going to happen and how am I going to cope with it that (laughs) my mind loves to try to figure out, it wants to rehearse, it wants to do all that. I can recognize it if I'm aware in that moment and I can observe it. There's an awareness of the experience that changes it. Mm -hmm. But the mind is still doing its thing, right? It's just, oh, you went down the old road. Okay, hello, hi, how you doing? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You know, it's so much of the, quote, new age this kind of affirmation stuff. And believe me, I've been through that. I mean, I've been a seeker all my life. This idea, which is really what it is, that we can change the mind, right? Make it better, right? Let's think positive thoughts and everything will be rosy. You know, uh, even all of that, it's trying to use the mind to change the mind. And that's not where true change happens. True change happens through awareness. I think I mentioned it in the child development that you took. If we really look at the fundamental experiment that proved quantum physics, in essence, they took, were able to isolate, you know, these little particles in a vacuum and shot it through a hole. And what they found is that the particles, these atomic particles, behave differently in the presence of an observer than when no one observed it. Now, if you look at that, truly look at what's taking place there, the very presence of an observer changes the experiment. And the presence of the observer is is the witness. It's the passenger. It's our aware state of being. It's not the mind, because we can observe the mind. So it's not the body, because we can observe the body. We are in that space of, you know, living in this quantum world, if you will. And the very act of observation builds a new neural connection in the brain that bypasses the old pattern that the mind was running on. We're not building a new pattern. Oh, life is wonderful and I'm I'm fully empowered and all that stuff. It's not about trying to learn the new pathway by rote because words have no power. Words are simply a representation of an experience and we get lost in the words. I mean, I love words. My office is full of words. I write. I mean, I, I'm a word person. I love them. 
but the word is not the same as the experience. It's just a interpretation of it. And we, mm, the mind loves its interpretation. <laughs> I love what you're saying so much because I think a lot of people now, especially that human design has become so popular and so much more well-known, a lot of people, one of the first things they want to know, and especially if they're a non-sacral being, is what do I do with this? <laughs> and you know, how do I use this? And what do I do with this? And it almost brings me to tears to listen to you because it just feels like such a nourishing <laughs> consciousness to just say, just watch, just see, just observe. Most of these words, there's nothing to do with them, mm -hmm. but just see. And if you see, things will happen. It will shift the experience. So refreshing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, this, what do I do with it? The first time I saw a human design rave mandala, 1994 in Maui. It was hand-drawn. This was even before the software existed to generate charts. And this guy was explaining to me what it was. And, and I'm like, well, what is it telling you? And he said to me, well, it tells me I'm going to be rich. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, not interested. It's like, no, no, okay. This is, you know, not for me. It was really serendipitous that I actually engaged with human design. It's thanks to my partner, Darmen, and his connection with Marianne Winnegar. They go back to the late 70s in New York. We were all sannyasin, followers of Osho and we were all at the ranch the same. I wasn't at, there at the same time as Darmen was and Marianne was. But they reconnected years later in New York as they were kind of traveling and went to a party and saw each other and kept in touch for about a year as he and I were making a transition from living in Hawaii to moving to the mainland after 15 years living in Hawaii and living in Las Vegas. And he wrote to Marianne and said, I'm dying here. I don't know what to do. I was at my, just past my, my Uranus opposition. I was, uh, our kids had moved out and were in college and their own lives. So we were empty nesters and we're 13 years into our relationship, and it's like we've just been through a bankruptcy, a failed business. I mean, you name it. Life was not in a good place. And she wrote him back, and she said, well, I don't know if this will help you or not, but it's something I found really useful. Why don't you guys come from Las Vegas to Sedona, and I'll show you. And so we did. We took a weekend and went and visited. and. The computer program was fairly brand new at that point. And she was like, let me from your information. In. And she put in Darman's chart and out came a reflector. And she was like, oh, this is the first reflector I've ever seen come off of my computer. You know, it was the first reflector chart. So she launched into how human design and I'm a generator, but I'm emotional and he's a reflector. And she was like, you guys want to come back and have your readings with raw? I'm like, well, let me think about that. You know, and I was like, I don't know, you know, but I also saw that for Darmen, it was this moment of here's something, here's a surprise, something new, some light in the dark. And that Marianne has always been a special person in his life. I mean, he calls her his sister now. We're family, you know, it's, it's grew into that. It was kind of like I was in the room, you know, I was there while it was happening and it was something he was interested in, but we realized thanks to her 
the importance of sleeping alone. She and Michael had already created their own spaces. And she was like, look, if you're going to do this, here's what's involved. This is a this is a big thing to experiment with this for seven years. You really, you know, and then we're like, seven years is nothing compared to what we've been through, you know. So we went home, we talked about it. We said, okay, if we're going to get these readings let's really do this. Let's plan on coming back, sleeping apart, really going for this experiment. By July of 1999, we met with Ra, and the same day, we both had our foundational readings, and we had a partnership reading. And we started our experiment that day. It's basically how we began. The whole thing about the voice and the, I was like, I don't know this, you know, I've heard it all by this point. You know, I've had dead gurus. I've had live gurus. I've, you've named it. I've had it. So there was a part of me that was like, I don't know if I really trust this, but I'm willing to give it seven years and see. And it's important for Darmen, his reading changed his life in a lot of ways. I mean, as a reflector to be recognized as such was such a revelation for him. For me, the revelation was your emotion. Well, I knew I was emotional, but I didn't know how to live with being emotional. I did not get that. You know, being emotional... A lot of times the message gets lost in the emotionality that surrounds the message. <laughs> and a lot of the communication gets distorted because of the emotions behind it. I was embarrassed being emotion. You know, like that was something I should hide. You know, that it wasn't okay because I never had a healthy relationship with my own emotionality. And he offered me that possibility. He said two things that stuck. And one was at least sleep on a decision. <laughs> he says, I know that's going to be hard at the beginning. At least sleep on it. <laughs> and it was. It was. It took me three years before I recognized that space of emotional clarity in the decision, that the nervousness had really subsided. I kept making decisions during that time, but I never knew what it felt in me when that clarity is reached until about three years of experimenting. The other piece was is that he said, one day you can take out the garbage and you're crying. The next day you're taking out the garbage and you're whistling a happy tune. He said, it's not the garbage. This whole thing of needing a reason. You know, and emotional beings are taught that they should have a reason for what they're feeling. You know, it justifies the outburst. It's what's behind it. It's this, it's that. It's all of these words, right? But it's not the feeling itself. Feeling itself is pure. You're up, you're down, you're in between. There's nervousness going on. It's okay. Marianne said, feelings never, never hurt anybody, you know, physically. <laughs> And it's true, but there's this fear in it that I think open emotionals have tried to control emotional beings by taking them out of the feeling and into ideas about it. You know, if you can name the feeling, then you're going to be okay. That's just BS for the emotional being. You know, or there's the, you want us always stay at the high end of your way. Well, that's impossible. But the fear is, is if you go down in the wave, you're never going to come back up. That life is going to be just down in that horrible place forever. You know, really, the first six years, I was like, okay, there's been some useful stuff. I still don't know about this voice thing. It just doesn't make sense to me. In the sixth year, my life fell apart. Everything stopped working. My body stopped working. I came off the road. 
my Curon happened. My father moved back into my life. My son was living with us. I mean, all of the stuff from my first 30 years of life suddenly were in my face and my body couldn't move. I was on the couch for two years. At that point, I was like, oh, shit, there's something to this. <laughs> you know, I had to come to a full stop. And then things rearranged themselves. But the course that I was on was going to kill me. I mean, I was on medication for adrenal exhaustion. I mean, I was just, even though I'd entered into things correctly, I didn't understand that entering into things correctly doesn't mean they stay correct. I didn't understand that my mind was still hanging on tooth and claw to how the experience should be. And I wasn't having it how my mind kept saying it should be. So I kept pushing to try to get it to be the way I thought it should be. And everything fell apart. It was the greatest thing that could have happened. Because it forced me to get back to ground zero and really take a look at the patterns that my mind has been pushing for 50 years, trying to get me to have what my mind thought I should have. And that just couldn't work anymore. You know, Marianne, at the worst of it, she asked me, she said, do you want to live? I went, uh-huh. And she said, do you see that what you're doing is killing you? And I went, uh-huh. She said, are you ready to let it go? And I'm like, uh-huh. And I'm like, I don't know how that's going to happen. She says, you don't have to know how it's going to happen. <laughs> well, you'd mentioned that it took about three years of working with your emotional process with the awareness that was shared with you until you got to a point where you could really recognize that moment of clarity in your experiences. Could you say more about that or mm. what that experience was mm. like when you finally landed there or saw that? Yeah. About uh, six months into our experiment, Darmin moved to Seattle. I had taken a job, came to me, I responded to it opening stores around the country for what became part of Whole Foods. It was wild oats at the time. I was traveling, you know, we did 24 stores in 22 months. So we, I was like a traveling fool. And I was never in Sedona. So he was like, this isn't working for me. I'm going to Seattle where the kids are. And I'm going to go do my reflector thing and be by myself for a while. And we stayed in touch. I mean, we were still in relationship, but I was gone anyway. So, you know, I would just come and visit him on my furloughs, basically. But there was also a place in me that never knew if we were going to actually live together again. Because there's no guarantees, right? There's no, you know, he says he always knew eventually we'd get back together. But I, I you know, I had to live in that space of, I don't know. At one point, he, he asked me, he said, do you want to come live up here in Seattle? And we lived together again. And that took me about six months to finally reach a decision. The job ended. I'm in Sedona. Nothing's happening. And I'm like, oh, the first time that Ra heard a recording of two generators asking each other sacral questions was her and I, me asking her. I mean, this was back in the cassette recording days, you know, and a little microphone, and I'm asking her questions, and she's, oh, 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 you know, do you like ice cream and whales and all kinds of stuff? And so she was like, do you want some questions to see where you want to go next? And, you know, open G, I'm like, sure, you know. And so she even made me this tape with a bunch of questions about different places. And it did nothing. It was too artificial. It was fun. But it wasn't someone really asking me to move 
to that place. And it was too many questions. And Darmin just asked one time if I was ready to move in with him in Seattle. And uh, it landed somewhere inside me. And it still took time. It was like, I don't know, you know, living with him and me and him and on and in and in. And then finally there was a place where there wasn't any of that. There wasn't any nervousness about it. And so I asked him to ask me again, and I went, "Uh uh-huh. And there was no nervousness about that. And I use that term nervousness like tightness in the belly or the throat or butterflies, that physical, you know, either tension or slackening in the body or fluttering. You know, it's really a flutter for me. And it's different for different people. I'm just saying for me. And then when I said, "Uh uh-huh, and we started planning the move and everything else, people would ask me, oh, are you excited? I'm like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not. There was none of that. There was no excitement. There was no dread. It was as ordinary as walking through a door from one room to the next. And the day after we moved into our apartment, we woke up to 9-11, to the planes falling and walking. I remember walking down the street, going to Starbucks and getting a cup of coffee and everybody standing around talking, trying to use their cell phone. And I'm like, what the fuck's going on? Because we didn't have any power in our new apartment for Wi-Fi and stuff heard about 9-11 on the street. And I'm like, the timing of that move was so perfect because it would have been such a distraction to try to move after all that upheaval that went on. And yet it was like walking through all that emotional turmoil and not being touched by any of it. I don't mean touched in a human way but like there was no disturbance in my wave even though the world was going crazy at the moment it's like it's just as part of the unfolding of whatever's going on right now so that was my first clear point and again that term clarity it's like i'm a triple split so there's a lot of movement internally that goes on. I have a defined uh, head and ajna to the throat that's cut off from my splenic connection to my heart center that's cut off from my solar plexus to my emotional system. So I have three defined awareness centers and they don't talk to each other. (laughs) It's like when the spin cycle finally stops, It's almost like a feeling like a penny drops, like there's a, uh aha, okay, things have settled down. Now it's time to get that check-in question. I mean, Ra was very clear with me in my reading. He was like, just whatever comes at you, push it away a little. (laughs) See if it really comes back. Just give it some space. And to feel what that felt like when the space was just neutral, for me, is that experience of clarity. It's I call it equanimity. You know, we talk about the 3955, about the cup being half empty, half full. That, to me, is the epitome of equanimity. I don't have it, but it's like that concept of that point of balance where it's neither half empty nor half full. You know, that place where it's just at rest. Doesn't mean it won't move again, but, you know, that's... (laughs) Mm -hmm. that answer your question? Yes, thank you so much. Yeah. I can remember hearing from someone talking about their emotional authority saying that when they land in the clarity of something, that it's actually a little boring which sounds similar. Mm -hmm. But I found that there's great relaxation in that. 
the tension is in the processing, you know, for me, you know, that spin cycle that goes on before it lands. But once it lands and the actual experience unfolds, there's a spaciousness and a relaxation that certainly my body enjoys. <laughs> you know, my mind may have a lot to say, especially used to at the beginning, like, this is weird. This is strange to not be excited about moving, to not be afraid of a conversation, you know, those kinds of things. It's like, hmm, I don't get this, you know, but the body, man, it's just like, thank you. <laughs> Can we ask you about relationship? You've already been talking about it a bit. Mm -hmm. And I know you have a lot that you've been sharing and in your teaching around children and around family. So I'm wondering if you could say more to us just about how you view human design in relation to relationship and family. It's where the rubber meets the road. It's one thing to study human design, to learn about it, but the practice of it, if you actually get to practice it in your relationships, in your family unit, with your children, without experimentation, it just remains a mental construct. There's no benefit to the individual. But the real place where transformation happens is in your daily life. Like I said, we had 13 years before human design. We've had 23 years after human design. And I don't think we would have survived as a couple uh, in a relationship if human design hadn't kind of come along to help us unmesh, if you will, from old patterns and habits of relating that were really based on our openness and our conditioning, the genes are attracted to what the genes are attracted to, what to do about that. And we're attracted to what we are not. And that's okay if our sense of self and I don't mean self in a G sense, but I mean a sense of, if you will, the true being, if the sense of the passenger consciousness is there, then there's not so much investment in this persona, the one that has a name. But you still have these human relations with one another. You know, our kids were out of the house when we met human design. So the first time we taught living your design together, we did it with our sons. And Darmin has three sons. I had one son and three of them we raised together from the time they were 9, 10, and 11. So we had the locker room throughout middle school and high school. <laughs> and um, his eldest son was already in college. So teaching that to two projectors, a manifester, and a generator. It was a very interesting process to work with all the different types and to have them be our children. And with our men in the mix, we've got a reflector. So we've got all the types. We have one projector son that really embodies his design. And like, you don't hear from him unless you invite him. <laughs> it doesn't happen. You know, but he's living his design. He's got it. And he's got the channel of talent. He's a two four. He's a sphinx. He and he has a manifester and a couple of generators in his life that keep inviting him. And so he's good. And the generator son, every once in a while, a good question that he can respond to, he's happy. But the difference is that our children see the difference in ourselves, how we relate to each other and how we relate to them. That even with adult children, there's a recognition of, oh, this is not the same people that raised us. They've gone through something here. And there's a respect of that. You know, when Ross said human design fundamentally is for children, I got that. And my six-line 
body really resonates with the need for what's coming on the horizon for these children and the world that they're facing. It's going to require parents that can pass on human design in the daily living of life with their children. That's really the best way to reach children is to reach adults even, is when they're children, to help them to do these simple things like strategy and coming aware of your inner authority that go along with the developmental process of children so naturally. It's really the parents that's the the biggest challenge because they have to be living their experiment in order to model that to their children, in order to truly embody it so that what the children see is like what our children saw. Oh, there's something going on with them. They're different. They're actually respecting me. <laughs> they're not talking down to me like they're an authority. You know, these are parents that are really in my corner. And I think kids need that. I mean, the Articles I read about teenage incidences of anxiety and depression, you know, increasing like 200% between 2016 and 2019 in the U.S., and that it's only gone up from there. You know, the need is great, but it's got to come through the parents because no parent in their right mind is going to give access to a human design analyst to their eight-year-old child. It's just not going to happen. And even if you did, if the parent's not going to engage the child correctly, it's not going to have any impact. It's just stuff. In 2007, Ra asked us to teach in the IHDS, and we started in 2008. I think it was 2009, I started a parenting support group just to have a space where parents who were interested in human design could come and talk about their experiences and get some suggestions from other parents, what's working, what's not working, what they're running into. I ran that for a couple of years through the IHDS, and there was a wiki and all kinds of stuff. And then that eventually led to uh, us teaching child development and me continuing that. I love what you said, because I think a lot of people, when they come into human design, they perceive it as the end of their relationships. And it might be, but in what you're sharing, I think you're showing the invitation that it can be to evolve together, if that's Mm -hmm. possible to grow together and to see something new together and to be able to follow that, to find out what the relationship actually is, Mm -hmm. what it can be. Yeah. I would say the relationships are certainly better since human design than prior for sure for me, you know, but also our children, even when they're adults, even when they're in their forties and fifties, we're still their parents. So there's these dynamics that go on that can be learning opportunities for both parties if they're open and available to continuing to grow. And one of the gifts, I think, for me and Darman, especially when we got together, this was, you know, years before human design, our for our commitment to each other was to support each other's personal growth. That was the bottom line. It's like anything under the sun, if it was to support that person's personal growth, we're in, you know, and that has has stayed with us throughout the years. But, you know, Ron has a great joke about how you know if you're in the right relationship. Do you know this one? Oh, yes. I don't. I don't want to hear showing it. up for breakfast. That's it. <laughs> they keep showing up. You know, they show up for breakfast. You're good. If not, then, you know, your paths have diverged. And that's okay, too. What I see is that 
there's people that our paths keep crossing. And then there's someone that our paths are parallel, like Darmen and I. Right? We've had parallel paths for a long time. Certainly we had our divergences, but he keeps showing up for breakfast. And at 80, you know, he's 80, I'm 66. At this point, is like, I'll see you in the morning. And he's like, I sure hope so. Because you never know, right? This life is precious. If they show up for breakfast, you're good. <laughs> But that requires people being responsible for their decisions to show up. I think that's part of what human design, why you say, you know, the end of relationships. If the person's not committed to showing up, that is a natural point of divergence. Because human design, this sleeping alone, requires people to actually confront the whole issue of why they sleep together, this uh, availability for sex, you know, and of course my joke is, is that, you know, hopefully you're not having sex while you're asleep. Cause what we're talking about is sleeping alone, not whether you're in bed together or not, that you can have sex and just go to your separate rooms. It's fine. It's, it's actually quite sweet to have time together with someone and then go to your own space that that sense of embodiment really takes place when we're alone for me that waking up in my own aura is transformative that space before my mind starts in with da 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 da, da, da you know whatever <laughs> you know what you got to do today or you really should get up or anything but that place where i'm aware and awake and simply present in the body oh it's so delicious i mean mm, nothing like it and it doesn't happen if you're not alone i mean we only experience ourselves as we are designed when there's no one in our aura. And even then, there's still the transits coming through, but they're not that same day-in and day-out conditioning soup of that other person you live with. <laughs> I mean, we spend a lot of time together, but it's like my limit's about 45 minutes, and then I have to get up and go do something in my own space, even if it's just make a cup of tea, go outside, go in the office, whatever. My triple split, there's an aspect of me that's like, don't fence me in. <laughs> mm -hmm. Just let me roam. <laughs> let me just go roam around a little bit. And it's so delicious for me to have that. Yeah, a lot of what's been coming up for me when we're talking about relationships, we're seeing a lot of people enter into human design and then go through a deconditioning process and then gain some awareness or start kind of getting a, a sense of this is how things work for me or more awareness of their needs or what's healthy for them. And in that process, it involves a lot of letting go, mm -hmm. a lot of letting go of, of what we thought was going on or what we thought was true or we thought who we were or the other was. But you can find people kind of waking up, so to speak, in a relationship and having to, I guess, kind of get to know each other again or see, okay, this is mm -hmm. what we're dealing with. Does this actually work? What is actually going on here? And it requires a type of embrace of the unknown. I think you were speaking this earlier. We we don't actually know what's going to happen or where things are going. Mm -hmm. And if we're invested in things staying the same or whatever mm -hmm. our mind thinks is comfortable mm -hmm. or secure for us, that's where we kind of run into resistance. Well, and so is the mind's idea of what we think we want, what we think we need, and what we think, you know, this doesn't really fit me anymore. And th this would be, that's all just mind stuff. Until somebody asks you. You know, if somebody asks you to leave, <laughs> then you have a decision. Or if somebody decides to leave, then you have a decision. It's, it's just more mind stuff. Because we're only ever truly experiencing ourselves. 
The other is just part of the context of the Maya that we're living in. You know, it's like I'm holding a glass, but I'm not experiencing the glass. I'm experiencing the pressure of my hand on the glass and the coldness of the temperature of it. But that's an interior experience, this neurological between the sensors in my skin and my brain. It has nothing to do with the glass. You know, like Ross said, it's not about the garbage. We live in a black box, you know? It's like we have this vehicle that has sensory apparatus that takes in impressions. And then we have a mind that interprets those sensory impressions. And it happens so quickly, we don't even know what's happening. The only time we really pay attention to it is when the mind goes on repeat. I can't stand the way he doesn't pick up his socks. Whatever it is. I'm just making shit up now. All of that is just the mind's interpretation of an experience. But if we stay with our observation of the experience, it's like, oh, okay. So my mind says, (laughs) I can't stand the way he doesn't pick up his socks. So what? I truly believe, and again, I'm 1156, so I do believe that any relationship, it's capable if both parties are willing to show up. Now, if you're in a relationship with somebody who doesn't want to show up, that's a whole other story. That's a different dynamic entirely. I have relationships like that. I don't live with those people. But they're in a relationship with me because uh, their partner is or whatever. And, but I don't have much to do with them, right? But I show up for that experience, for me. I, even if they don't let me in, I, I show up for me. And I have my experience. And my mind, you know, has a field day. It has all kinds of stories about how they should be and how I should be and why isn't it working and why don't we get why don't we get along better and why doesn't that happen? And it's because of them and then, you know, it's because of me, all that stuff. And then it unfolds however it unfolds. Mm-hmm. The big changes in life happen. You don't have to try to push them, is what I've discovered. <laughs> <laughs> There's no need. And believe me, I'm one of the pushiest people around. I mean, I have three motors and then, you know, all of this. Just as Starman, I am very pushy. But it took a lot for me to recognize when I was pushing to try to get something to happen the way I thought it should. Very hard to see for a very long time. And it's a setup for failure because it's it's this huge blind spot in humans, right? You know, we're trained at this early age, figure out you what you want, make a plan for it, and then go get it. You know, make it happen. <laughs> I call it mental manifesting, right? Because true manifestors don't do that at all, but <laughs> that's another story. But yeah, I mean, it's this push that, you know, the sacral, it's always humming. And which is why I like projectors, because you guys don't have any hum, right? You know, the same thing with reflectors, uh, even manifestors with their closeness. I find it relaxing to be around non-sacrals. Sacrals, I, you know, I can feel the vroom vroom you know and that's fun in small doses but i got enough vroom vroom of my own most of the time you know (laughs) the real gift is i found is just waiting to see what the sacral truly has energy for you know it's like i'll make a list of all the things that my mind says i need to do today But if I don't have any energy for that, if it doesn't just start, the body doesn't really have any juice for it, I don't do it because I'm not a slave to this idea of what should happen. 
right? And the fear is, of course, that if you live your life that way, that one, nothing will ever happen, the great generator fear, <laughs> or two, that something terrible will happen, <laughs> right? And you won't be able to handle it, or I won't be able to handle it, you know? What I see over 23 years is that this gradual realignment that takes place, and it's really seven-year cycles of deconditioning. You know, the first seven years is just to get the body to a certain place where the frequency even becomes possible to stabilize. And then the next seven years is a lot of cleaning up the messes you made in the first seven years. (laughs) And then the next seven years is like really relaxing into, it's no longer even a choice of a way of life. It's just simply, what happens next? I'm so curious, you know, (laughs) let's see. I love that as an explanation of deconditioning. It was actually something that I was wanting to ask you about how your experience of deconditioning has evolved over such a long time working well, with it. One of the things to understand about deconditioning is that not every cell in the body replicates itself every seven years. I mean, this is one of the great myths that's perpetrated in humans. It's like, oh, every seven years, your cells are going to replicate themselves. Not in the brain. Mind is an aspect of the brain itself. So what doesn't change in seven years? Well, the mind, (laughs) right? The stem cells in our bone. There's certain cells that replicate either much more slowly or very, very seldom, you know, or you don't want to lose them like the neurons in your brain, (laughs) It's um, a misnomer, this idea that seven years you're going to be done. Because seven years, yes, a large amount of the cells in the body. But, you know, the mind is so powerful in its imaginary power, right? It really has none. But because we have these pathways where we can think about something and scare ourselves that trigger a chemical cascade that then the body has to deal with, those are the ones that are really um, persistent illusions. Let's put it that way. Because of the chemical component, it makes it seem as if it's real. The fear of being a bag lady, like in my case, or fear of not going to be able to handle something, which is one of them that I have. And then nobody's going to come to help me, right? (laughs) Because the sensation that I feel in my body, my mind has interpreted that in a particular way, overwhelmed. And then it's like, I don't want to deal with that feeling. So my mind then creates this story that I know very well, puts it on repeat. Well, you know, nobody's going to help you and something terrible is going to happen. And, uh, you know, all of whatever. That pattern is laid in the brain, in the neural pathways. And the chemical trigger of it is laid in the neural pathways. So. The process is really training to observe that rather than identify with it. And one of the characteristics of conditioning is identification, right? Amplification is another. There's a few others, but those are dominant. Amplification, making a mountain out of a molehill or, you know, that kind of thing. Or identification. This is me. This is who I am. This is, you know, my truth, blah, 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 blah. And it's all story. Those don't go away in that first seven years because those cells have not replicated in the brain. So the process of deconditioning the mind, ah, that's an ongoing journey. That's, you know, the rest of the life practice, right? Is this really happening right now? Is what my mind talking about? Is that 
my experience here in this moment? Nope. Okay. <laughs> then I know where it is. <laughs> my mind says, blah, blah, blah. You know, that's a practice Marianne has talked about for years. I journaled the first four years of my experiment. Wrote, 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 wrote. In the fourth year, I went back through. It was time to start a new journal, right? And I'm looking back through these previous journals, and I finally had the awareness that they all said the same thing. What am I going to do? What's my career going to be? Where am I supposed to be? It was all this open G stuff. Years of it. And I couldn't see it because I was so identified with it. But getting it out on paper enabled me to recognize finally that I was telling myself the same story over and over and over. We had a student who said different costumes, same role. You know, it's like it's the same story over and over again. But the mind dresses it up in these different costumes. So we think it's like, oh, it's a new situation. I got to figure out what I'm going to do, you know. Mm -hmm. So the tool for me, when we first began, what Darmen was told was to, to start tracking the moon, to track the transits. And for the first three years, we both did. Because my ego is such that anything that was good for him, I was going to do too. Because I'm going to be left out, right? Good for personality, right? <laughs> you know? And I wanted to learn this too, right? If it was good for him, it had to be good for me too. I think he even drew his chart every day at least for a while. I just photocopied my chart and then I colored in not only the moon, but the transit. The breakthrough for me was uh, the first year the sun went into gate 12. And I have a 22. It's a hanging gate, but it's in a defined solar plexus. And I was looking forward to the 12 coming in. I'm like, oh boy, manifesting time. You know, it's like that early stage where you think that if, uh, transits happening that you actually have the definition and that you're going to be able to use it. And then the 12 comes in and it's this, for me, the 12 is a, a very cranky energy experience. It's the best way I can put it into words. It's like, you know, that 22 of mine is used to having that openness. And suddenly it's almost like feeling like the energy is being sat on. And it makes me very cranky. And I'm like, oh, I recognize this energy. Get it. This is what I'm tracking. I'm tracking so that I can recognize how I feel the energy. I think the other big breakthrough for the two of us was the first time that we recognized when the 21 came through. Darmen has a hanging 45 and I have a hanging 45. So, you know, the joke is that, you know, who's in control in the relationship, right? And we can fight. I mean, he's got the six, I've got the 59, six. Friction is very, very much a potential when the, when the mind and minds bump heads, right? And we're both hard heads. And we're fighting like junkyard dogs. And I look at the transit and I'm like, oh, the 21 is in. And I started tracking it. It's like, yep, now we can laugh about it. Oh, the 21 is in. Oh. It doesn't mean we still don't get caught by it now and then. But I recognize that flavor. That's the process. As the transits unfold, because it gives me a signpost for what I'm experiencing, not the story that my mind has about it, but how the energy is truly experienced, how that frequency, how I'm taking that in. And that's unique. Nobody else is going to take it in the way I do. Nobody's going to take it in the way you do. 
we can understand the mechanics of a gate. We can read the description of it. And it operates in a spectrum. But the experience of it is individual. And see, that's why it can only really be a signpost. Because until we recognize for ourselves how we experience a particular gate, then it's just a mental idea of what it means, right? But once we recognize the energy experience, ah, we have a, something that we can recognize, a, a signpost that we can come back to. And then when I'm feeling that energy, this is what my mind is done with. And we can start recognizing how that story starts to get laid in there. And again, like we were saying earlier, that observation of the experience changes the experience. There's the potential in that awareness to be aware of the pattern rather than identified with. And that for me is an ongoing process. I would say that first seven years, just kind of getting some of the larger aspects kind of integrated, and then the next seven years really honing down into how I experience particular energies and what that's like for me. And then, you know, being able to track that into how the mind goes about <laughs> storytelling from that. When a new one shows up, when I see one, it's buried pretty deep down there, like this one of helplessness and how my mind is interpreted. That one has been one I've been really watching how the permutations of that show up. It's fascinating. Some people use this image of peeling the layers of an onion, you know, or the opening of the lotus or however you want to describe it. It's like, you know, there's always stuff in my blind spot that I don't see where the mind is still running on automatic, where it's still got its story, you know, where it's still. But more and more, then, you know, you begin to be able to track, oh, that's what was going on when that happened in the past, then it becomes, oh, I'm feeling that sensation and I'm seeing how my mind goes about the storytelling in the present and coming back to what is my experience in the present, not what this mental layer is. And um yeah, it's, it's the only game in town. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a much longer process than seven years. And maybe know. it's. I don't know. I know how it is for me. For me, it's going to be a lifetime. I'm a slow learner. <laughs> I can say <laughs> being with Darmen, who's two cycles older than me. At 80, the observation of the experience is pretty much his day in and day out. That's where mm -hmm. he saves. Just observing what's taking place within himself. But he's a 1-3, so, you know, he's very self-contained. For myself, it's also all the interactions, right? You know, what comes up for me in those interactions as well, with myself and with others. but. I would say I'm relaxing more and more as I mature into the just the delight of the experience of the body. My mind is defined. It's never going to stop. It's not. You know, when I'm lucky, it's playing music. It gets caught on an earworm and it'll just play songs from that I heard on TV or 40 years ago. It doesn't matter. It just plays what it wants. I don't, I'm not in control of the radio. And the more I relax with that and just let it blather on about whatever it is it's blathering about, the more comfortable I feel being present in this body, you know, being present in this vehicle. It's like binary consciousness, we have this potential 
to be simultaneously aware of both, both the body awareness and the mental awareness, right? We, the design and personality. And we live in the quantum of both. And the experience of that, yum. <laughs> well, I think that's a good place to end. Yeah, that's beautiful. We could ask you a million questions all day, but I feel like you've given up qu- quite some gems here. <laughs> I don't know what I said. So <laughs> thank you for your question. I mean, I love your question. I mean, I love projectors in general, but specifically, you know, the questions are mm, sometimes a good projector question is just the juiciest thing in the world. So thank you guys. I mean, what a treat. I'm so glad that you do this, Mm. you know, that mm, you make yourselves available in this way. I mean, it's rich and juicy. So thank you. We've really enjoyed your child development class and going through that and having your awareness and view on those things. But it's been really special to meet in this context as well and just speak directly and hear from you. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Human Design Collective podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please review us and share. You can find us at humandesigncollective.com and explore our course and workshop offerings at courses.humandesigncollective.com. Music for the Human Design Collective podcast is courtesy of Anders Parker. For more information, see the show notes. And please stay tuned for upcoming episodes on the same channel.